Welcome to the Mind Medicine Podcast, where we bring you breakthrough innovations in the field of mental health and well-being. I'm your host, Tommy Moore, bioscience educator and advocate for advancing the state of human health and psychology. This podcast is made possible by Mind Medicine Australia, a not-for-profit organization founded to increase medical access to and awareness of psychedelic-assisted therapies. In furtherance of this mission, the Mind Medicine Australia podcast aims to facilitate engagement between clinicians, researchers, mental health practitioners, and other leaders in psychedelic-assisted therapies to provide expert opinion, share research results, and ultimately help to educate the public about potential new opportunities in patient treatment. Before we get into this episode, I would like to say that this information in the episode is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for the advice provided by a doctor or other healthcare professional. Patients should not use the information contained for diagnosing a health problem or disease and should always consult with a doctor or healthcare professional for medical advice or information about diagnosis and treatment. With all of that said, this episode, Professor David Nutt, in for round two. I was extremely excited to sit down with him. And it's obviously something that hasn't really been spoken about at all throughout this podcast. And cannabis is quite an amazing plant and drug. It's a very unique drug. While heroin is an opioid and cocaine is a stimulant, cannabis doesn't clearly or cleanly fit into any particular category of drugs. It's largely viewed as a depressant, but it can also be viewed as a hallucinogen or a stimulant. So it has many, many different properties. And part of the reason why it has so many different properties is because of the constituents that the plant is made up of. It includes the cannabinoids like THC and CBD, It also includes terpenes, things like pinene or myrcene, for example. And these terpenes and cannabinoids collectively can hugely impact how the cannabis interacts with our brain and body and what the effects are. For some people, cannabis can be very sedative. It just kind of knocks you out and makes you feel really, really sleepy. For others, it can be very stimulating and provoke lots of creative thoughts and this often depends well it does depend on what the chemical and constituent makeup of each cannabis strain and plant is most of the quote-unquote street weed that one would get is generally very very high thc and very very low cbd and thc and cbd work a bit like yin and yang they kind of need each other in order to have the most beneficial effect in general. Of course, they can have effects on their own. And for many people, having THC is not ideal with the whole driving situation. So CBD is often being used as a therapeutic agent. And what cannabis does is it has the ability of nurturing or helping our own internal endogenous cannabinoid system which we call the endocannabinoid system this system is incredible it innovates just about every other system in the body it works alongside the nervous system and obviously the nervous system is connected to 
every system and organ within our body. And this endocannabinoid system has been around for millions of years. It existed before humans did. It exists in many plants and many animals. And we're only really beginning to understand how vital our endocannabinoid system is. And perhaps there are deficiencies in cannabinoids or endocannabinoids within someone that may be then manifesting as ill health. I think it's best to imagine the endocannabinoid system as like a homeostatic regulator. So homeostasis is a term that if you did biology in school or perhaps you listen to a lot of health-based podcasts, you probably heard of homeostasis before, but it's a term that describes a biological system's desire to maintain balance within its system. And endocannabinoids are signaling molecules that help to regulate many, many different processes within the body, which can include processes such as pain, memory, mood, immunity, and stress. Throughout this conversation that I had with David Nutt, we talk about the endocannabinoid system and how we should imagine our endogenous cannabinoid system, how it differs to things like neurotransmitters and neuromodulators. We, of course, talk about cannabis, the constituents of cannabis, including cannabinoids, terpenes, flavonoids, and what's called the entourage effect, which is the effect of the collective cannabinoids and terpenes that are ingested to cause the psychological effect or biological effect within the brain and body. And otherwise we can nurture our endocannabinoid system. I actually entered this conversation thinking that I knew quite a bit about cannabis. I knew about cannabinoids and terpenes and the entourage effect. I'd certainly heard about it before and experimented myself. I actually have a cannabis prescription and I've tried various different profiles of cannabis and have noticed different effects. But David Nutt, being a world-renowned neuropsychopharmacologist, presented many things that I did not know about cannabis. So whatever background information you've had about cannabis, I have no doubt that you will learn much from this conversation. So I'm going to leave it there and please enjoy this conversation with David Nutt. Mr. Nutt, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, you'll be the first uh, guest that I've had on for the second time. So perhaps that's a compliment to you and your entertainment and knowledge to us. So thank you. Oh, I'm honored. Thank you. Um, and firstly, I mean, what kind of sparked me to, to reach out to you again was your new book, um, Cannabis, Seeing Through the Smoke. And I'm about two thirds of the way through it. Um, it's very clear, very concise, well-structured. I, I really like the kind of the progression as you go through it. And I appreciate, yeah, the, the clarity that you give. Um, and it, it's a very well-rounded book. I haven't finished it yet. Um, I was hoping to have, to have finished before this conversation, but um, I still have a lot of curiosity within this space. So how, how did you go about writing this book and what sparked it? Well, I, as I guess many of you know, I've been very interested in 
drugs and drug harms for a very long time. I was the government's sort of chief advisor on drugs, chief scientific advisor anyway, for almost 10 years in the 2000s. And before that, I was started developing ways of assessing the harms of drugs. I'm a psychopharmacologist. I give drugs to people. I, I've probably given more different kinds of drugs to humans than anyone ever, maybe, certainly alive. And, I'm, and, it, and cannabis is clearly a very interesting drug because it produces effects in the brain which are rather different from other drugs. But it's illegal. And, uh, or at least it certainly was when I started working with it and started asking questions about its harms and uh, its um, potential utility. And, and then, as many of you will know, I got sacked by the British government and, uh, in 2009 as their chief advisor, partly for saying that cannabis was less harmful than alcohol. And uh, that didn't go down well with the governments that actually get a lot of money from the alcohol industry and also politicians who drink a lot. So after that, I set up a charity called Drug Science, which has been telling the truth about drugs for a long time. And, and as the more we began to understand the nature of drug policy, the more I began to realize it was all based on, on lies and it was all political or, or moral. And that cannabis had been peculiarly vilified as a, as, as a drug. It was a medicine in Britain until 1971, and then it ceased to be a medicine by an act of parliament, which is, I think, unique. I don't think there's ever been a medicine that parliamentarians have taken out of medicine. Of course, they shouldn't have any rights to do that anyway, because, I mean, what do they know about medicine? So I've been kind of campaigning for a more rational perspective on cannabis for a long time, and a more, so, a more uh, sensible uh, perspective on alcohol. So three years ago, I published my, uh, my first book in this series, which was called Drink? Question mark, And it was about telling the truth about alcohol and basically giving people the pros and cons and then letting them make, make their own mind up as to what they do. And then the cannabis book is the second book in the series. Uh, and again, it, it tries to walk that line between uh, being uh, pro or being anti. It's neutral. It just tells you what we know about it and you can make your own mind up. And by the way, as a little plug for the next one, I'm starting now on the third one in the series. There's only going to be three. And the third one, Psychedelics. Brilliant. So in a couple of years' time, or no, I think we're going to launch it hopefully next April. So in a year's time, you can chat to me again about my Psychedelics book. I would love to. Um, and it's interesting because writing is something that I'm focusing on developing at the moment. I've always loved writing, uh, generally like intuitively, more as it relates to like you know, self-work and journaling of the likes. But Recently, uh, since I've moved out and I, and I live by myself, so I have quite a lot of time to be, I guess, very intentional throughout my day. And I've been trying to write more intentionally. And I'm in the process of formalizing a lot of my, I guess, learning in education and, and science and health. So I'm interested to obtain some of your advice and strategy in, in your approach to your writing, because I, you know, I seem to, to fluctuate be, uh, between different times of the day. Sometimes I'm almost too alert and can't think yeah. as clear and and then the you know I guess the second half of the day is a little bit more of a calm focus and and I can't get enough done so I'm trying to I'm still <laughs> learning about it and obviously I'm, I'm very young and I have a lot of time um to, to continue writing and I'm not sure where that it's all going to take me but are there any systems that you you follow or, or that you note about how you go about your writing uh, <laughs> No, because my, I, I have a, I think, I think opposite kind of job to you. My, my life is extremely chaotic, running a charity, running a, a part-time academic career, running the psychedelic research group in Imperial, developing my synthetic alcohol. Now, 
I, for me, the, the, the secret is it's whenever you're awake and you've got some spare time, start writing. But the, of course, the great thing is these days we've got the, um, you know, with word processors, you know, with word, pro, you've got to just become very good at editing and moving things around. You know, it's, you never get it right to begin with, but, you know, don't even aspire to be, you know, get everything, get your ideas down and then gradually craft them over a period of months into something that's, uh, that's kind of cogent and intelligible. Yeah, perfect. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll take up that advice um, because, yeah, I find I'm um, often frustrated. Sometimes you feel like you're going behind and sometimes you're like refining and moving a lot of things around. But, yeah, all very new to me, um, but I'm certainly enjoying the, the agitation. Um, but I guess today's conversation, the first conversation that we had was, I guess, focused on predominantly psilocybin, but classical psychedelics in general, how they how they work, what their effects are on the brain, what the psychological effects are. So I'd like to take a somewhat similar approach to um, cannabis. Um, obviously, you've, you've just released this new book, and by no means will this be an exhaustive um, description of all things cannabis. So we should point to your book that if this conversation is of any interest to the listener, then they should learn more uh, through your book. But I want to start that whole conversation of, of cannabis and medical cannabis by actually talking about our own endocannabinoid system, because it's a very unique system in our body. And it, I mean, it, it, it isn't one of the, you know, 11 essential kind of systems or organs that we typically think of like the nervous system or digestive system, it kind of, you know, as I understand it, innovates quite a lot of different systems or modulates a lot of different systems. And so yeah. perhaps could you just give us a, a I guess, a description or, or how should we imagine our endocannabinoid system? Yes, the nearest uh, analogy, I suppose, is, is to think uh, about a hormonal system. I mean, a lot of people know about cortisol, for instance, and cortisol is a hormone produced by the adrenal gland, but it also has, has effects throughout the body, vital, if you don't have enough cortisol, then you um, have a disorder, disease called Addison's disease, and then your blood pressure collapses and you, and you die. <clears throat> but cortisol also works in the brain and it protects the brain at some levels, but at other levels, it can actually cause problems in the brain. So uh, that, the endocannabinoid system is, a, is a, a, basically a, a biological biochemical system that affects a very large number of different uh, cell types in, in the body and in, and in the brain. Um, but it's unusual, very unusual, and that's why it took a while to be discovered because it, it's not in the brain, uh, well, any, wherever it's produced, it's not, it's not produced in the typical way like neurotransmitters or hormones. It's not packaged in little, um, what we call vesicles, and released on demand. It's actually made from the, the cell membranes as you probably know each a cell is something that is <laughs> basically you know got a nucleus and enzymes that are packaged in a, a fatty uh, out, you know package uh, you know, a bag and that fatty bag uh, is uh, consists of uh, com complex fatty acids but when there's uh, communication between neurons in the brain, particularly glutamate neurons, then the um, activity of, of those glutamate receptors leads to the release of these fatty acids, which are then turned into endocannabinoids. 
So it's a very sophisticated, rather clever feedback system. It, it, and that's why it's called an adaptive journey. It actually helps uh, balance out, uh, harmonize, um, equalize the uh, activity of uh, other neurotransmitters and probably other hormones elsewhere in the body. So it's made on demand. Uh, and it, called, it gives what we call feedback inhibition. So if something happens in a, a neuron and it, mostly the um, endocannabinoid system feeds back on the previous neuron to, to set it to shut off or perhaps in some, times, in some cases do a little bit more. Uh, uh, and it does that through acting on receptors. So the, the, the endocannabinoid system is made on demand, but there are receptors in the brain waiting for it to be made. So it is that it's... Um, some ways a bit like a, a normal neurotransmitter system but in other ways it's rather it's somewhat somewhat different because of this as i say it's uh, it's synthesized when you need it rather than be, being stored ready to be used yeah right and the endocannabinoids they don't circulate throughout the body or or like when it's made because from what i've kind of gathered is that it, it's made very quickly but also breaks down very quickly so is there much room for it to, to transport through, through the blood or other means? Well, no, but the point is it's being made pretty much everywhere because it can, in theory, be made from, from any cell membrane. Uh, and uh, we don't exactly know where the, the, the blood levels or the spinal levels come from. I mean, it's likely that if you measure it in the spinal fluid, then it's almost certainly coming from neurons. In the blood, I don't think we've yet worked out exactly where it comes from. Um, but it's certainly... You know, it, the endocannabinoid system has a really important role in most organs and, and is particularly um, always discovered to be particularly um, relevant in, in relation to the immune system. But it turns out that a lot of different organs have cannabis receptors. So we what we don't yet know is whether that's like the receptors are sitting there waiting for it, the kind of the endocannabinoids to be made locally or, may, or whether they're receiving um, endocannabinoids produced elsewhere. That's it's actually not been fully worked out yet. Mm, but of course, if yeah. you take cannabis, if you take um, THC, that gets into the blood and that wanders around and, and targets all the, the cannabis receptors in the brain and the periphery. And it's that broad, very broad range of um, targets, which means that medical cannabis is such a fascinating uh, innovation because it's, it's almost, there's probably no organ system in the body that it couldn't work on if uh, if it needed to yeah it does seem to be quite fascinating in terms of i guess the the range of different effects and medicinal properties that it has and and often sometimes you know when you're designing a, a study with cannabis it's like well where do you where do you even look i guess the whole when you with the science it's like you have to often reduce or reduce it to THC or CBD or whatever. But, you know, there's obviously many different types of cannabinoids that will probably do many things around the body. So how, how would you go about designing an experiment that actually figures out how it, how it does interact with all these, these places? Yeah, well, that really is a, that's a, that's a big challenge because you just emphasize there are two separate dimensions. There's a dimension of the different organ systems and, and then there's the dimension of the different elements that are found in the cannabis plant. So let's just stick with the organs first, because that's somewhat simpler. So what we know uh, is that there are at least two different receptors in the body for THC. So let's let's work. Start with the 
well, most people know about THC. THC is the um, the plant product that makes you stoned, uh, um, and also just uh, can have uh, analgesic effects and sleep promoting effects. So you, it's it's the most of the reasons why people use recreational cannabis. You smoke a joint, THC goes into your body, and it works on one of or in fact, it works on two cannabis receptors. One's called the CB1 receptor, and one's called the CB2 receptor. And the CB1 receptor is the receptor that is in the brain. Largely, it's the most common receptor in the brain, and that's where THC goes in and, and alters your brain. So, you know, you get more relaxed, you get more sleepy, you might get nauseous, um, you might get paranoid. All, those things happen in the brain. In the periphery, there are CB1 receptors, but there are also um, more of the CB2 receptors. And, and, and these receptors are interestingly discovered in the spleen, which is the, the organ that uh, hosts and you know acts as a sort of a mothership for the immune system. And so CB2 receptors have got, seem to have quite an important role in, in immune function, but also probably in stabilizing the activity of many of the, of the other organs in the body. Uh, and it's quite likely to say that the therapeutic effects of THC and something like Crohn's disease are mediated through CB2 as well as CB1 receptors. So, so that's the sort of bottom line. Um, we do have antagonists. We can block the CB1 receptors. So we, we are in a position to ask questions, you know, you know what impact does the CB1 receptor stimulation have? And, um, and so we can reverse, for instance, the effects of, of THC by giving a, a, an antagonist like Rimonaban to uh, the blocks of CB1 receptors. But you get to the next question. How do you, what, what about all the other cannabinoid type substances which are found in, particularly in sort of whole plant extract of, of normally grown cannabis rather than skunk, say? So there you have the, the kind of alter ego of THC, which is called cannabidiol. And it, it, THC and cannabidiol are very much yin and yang. So THC can make you anxious and it can. Uh, make you uh, psychotic. Uh, cannabidiol can make you relaxed and, uh, and also um, possibly have antipsychotic effects. So they're, they're complementary. And we don't entirely know why CBD opposes the effects of, of THC. Sorry, can, CBD stands for cannabidiol, just to be clear. Um, in part, it's because it does have separate activities which are opposite. So it might just be counterbalancing. But there is some evidence now that uh, through a, a kind of indirect uh, mechanism, cannabidiol may dial down some of the effects of THC. So it seems to be a sort of natural antidote through a, some kind of compensatory mechanisms, which we don't fully understand. It's not directly acting at the cannabis receptors, but it's a moderating the effects of THC. And this, of course, turns out to be hugely important to when we are now reflecting on the risks of, uh, of THC in terms of things like schizophrenia and psychosis, which we, perhaps we'll come back to later. But CBD by itself does have a range of interesting effects. It, as I've already said, it's calming, it's uh, sleep promoting, uh, it may well be adaptogenic, it may well be anti-inflammatory. It, uh, there's, a, there's an enormous um, anecdotal literature on the values of, of CBD. And now there's some science coming. I mean, one of the most exciting areas is the use of CBD in epilepsy. And there are 
um, some forms of epilepsy for which a pure extract of, of, of cannabidiol has been licensed. It's called Epidiolex, and it does help some children with severe seizures, um, rare seizure disorders like Menex gasto and, and Dravet syndrome, and also uh, seizures and tuberous sclerosis. So that's been a real breakthrough. But here is just to be absolutely clear, when CBD is being used for its adaptogenic properties, when many people are taking CBD as a health aid, you're using 20 to 30 milligrams a day. In epilepsy, uh, the children are using maybe between 500 and 1,000 milligrams a day, much higher doses. So we can't, we're not sure if that it's working through the same system when that system somehow is downregulated in epilepsy, so you need more, or whether it's working through another system in epilepsy, that, that's still unclear. But then there's another twist to it, and this is where it gets really interesting, because our, um, our, our studies of children with uh, severe childhood epilepsy uh, has shown that CBD alone can be useful, but not as useful as the whole plant extract. So the whole plant extract is basically taking a hemp plant, squeezing all the juice out of it or extracting it with carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide. And then in there, you've got CBD, but you've got a lot of other things, uh, hundreds of other cannabinoid molecules, which are small, small masses, and, uh, and also other things like terpenes. And that, that's called the entourage effect. And it turns out that certainly with children with these severe epilepsies, the whole plant extract is considerably more effective than just the pure CBD in these children. Sometimes it's life, life changing. And we don't understand why that is because we really don't have any science on all these other products that are in the, in the, uh, in the extract. So it's a long answer because it's a very complicated question. <laughs> no, absolutely. It's, it's a long answer is needed for such a question. And my nutritionist background kind of, lichens um imagining cannabis you know often when people think about nutrition they're often thinking about you know vitamins macronutrients and, and minerals just in you know almost in isolation they're like oh well as long as i have a multivitamin and this and that then you know i'll be fine but it's really like within a plant and obviously cannabis is is a, is a plant um the plant has you know hundreds of different compounds that have you know, effects expanding all throughout the body and doing all sorts of different things. So cannabis is, is in that same category and, and I almost liken it to, it is kind of like having nutrition in some sense, you're almost nurturing that um, cannabinoid system that, but it's hard to say, but, you know, may or may not be deprived and it is causing things like uh, epilepsy or manifests yeah, as, as other things. Tommy, that's one of the really great, you know, interesting questions, you know, what do we do? You know, are there disorders? I mean, in a very simple way, is, is are these childhood epilepsies a disorders of deficient endocannabinoids, or are they disorders of something else like the neurotoxic effects of glutamate that, that the cannabinoids can come in and, and rectify? And uh, it's really hard at present to to ask you know to address that question. We can ask the question, but we can't properly uh, explore that question because we don't have the tools yet but it seems to me very plausible that many disorders uh, that we have uh, will be disorders of the endocannabinoid system and we just haven't worked them out yet in the same way as it took many hundreds of years to work out 
that we needed vitamins because <laughs> so it's a, it's it's a, an area of um, of in enormous research interest and also a, a great research need and of course it's 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 not it's been slowed down by the fact that that in most countries uh both cannabidiol and thc have been illegal drugs for decades for no good reason other than uh, it was uh, something that the united nations in its stupidity decided to uh, to enact and so i mean it's kind of weird that in in most countries cannabidiol which is not even psychoactive in any sense you can get stoned on cannabidiol was illegal uh, and basically banned under the WHO in the United Nations until just a couple of years ago. I mean, it's, and still there's hysteria in my country about whether you can sell cannabidiol with the tiniest bit of THC present, because that tiniest bit of THC is still illegal uh, in, in, in terms of being in medicine in Britain. So, so the legal status of, of the cannabis plant has actually been very deleterious to research. It's, it's one of the worst censorship of research in the history of the world. It set the whole field back. The UN 1971 convention set the whole world back about 50 years. And mm. Hundreds of thousands of patients have died prematurely or suffered as a result of that. And we still haven't broken the back of it. Right? Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's easier to do research in some countries, but in many countries, it's still completely illegal to work with these products. Mm. Yeah, it's frustrating to, to have been put back for so long and I mean it, it does feel like times are changing I'm actually fortunately in the category of, of having my own cannabis prescription and it's only been available to me in the past I think four or four or five months or maybe, or maybe six months um so I have chronic knee issues and kind of inflames a lot and I've been experimenting with all these different different types um but so in that sense, it does feel like there there is progress, um, just in the mindset towards all drugs and pharmacology in general. And I think that's a big credit to a, a lot of education around it. And you know, even people who you wouldn't have thought would be open to the idea um, are now a little bit more open to the idea. And I think cannabis has a little maybe. Maybe this is just my view, but a little less stigma than psychedelics, or at least a lot less fear than psychedelics, because obviously, I mean, the model is is, is very, very different with cannabis. You, you know, you, you take it home and it's, yeah. you know, a lot less haphazardous hazardous in the sense of, you know, you're not going to trip out all day and, and struggle to do daily things necessarily, but correct, um, correct. it does feel like the, there is progress there. Um, which is exciting, and often... yeah, I think you know, there is there is progress. I mean, as I said, it's not as fast as it could be. I mean, the the problem we have is, and and that we've met this very very strongly in the UK with these ch ch childhood epilepsy patients, is that um, the dis the discovery that cannabis has been very helpful to these children has been made by the parents who have gone off mostly to Holland and, and got prescriptions, private prescriptions uh, for these medicines, costing them, costing them thousands of pounds a month to treat their children's epilepsy. And they've come back and they've said, look, our children are much better. There was one, one child in our, we've got 20 children on our, our, our case series. One of them was having 10,000 seizures a month. He was basically sit fitting all the time 
which was obviously in the end going to destroy his ability to learn or, or, or go to school or whatever. Now he's having no seizures. So they go then, they say, okay, my, we've cured my, I've killed my child. And they go to the doctor, the pediatricians and say, look, child's cured now. Could you please prescribe on the NHS to save me having to mortgage my house to, to keep treating him? And the doctors in the NHS say, no. And they say, why not? And they say, the doctors say, well, there's no evidence it works. And they say, well, hang on. My child's gone from 10,000 seizures a month and none. Is that not evidence? Oh, no, they say, no, that's not good enough evidence. That could be a placebo effect. Oh, so they say, what do you want us to do? Well, you've got to stop the medicine and see if he gets worse. And they say, I'm not going to do that because he might die. Well, that's the only way you can prove the medicine's working. And they say, well, hang on a second, but he was on seven other anticonvulsants, including epidiolics before, and they didn't work. So if the placebo was going to work then, well, uh, it, it isn't, you know, I mean, when they're act taking an active placebo, why would it be working now? And then these doctors just turn away. They just say, nope until someone has done the placebo control. And it's a complete misunderstanding about A, the nature of, of, um, of cannabis and the fact that there's these complicated entourage uh, mixtures, but also the fact, I think, that the paternalism in the medical profession. I think, I think the fact that it's patients and parents that have discovered the, the, the benefits. Doctors are now trying to prove that they're wrong because doctors like to be the people that make these discoveries. So we've actually reached a rather unpleasant impasse in the UK, certainly, with. And I think the same is true in Canada. I think it's probably also true in Australia that the medical profession doesn't understand cannabis. Mm. It doesn't like cannabis. It has to relearn how to use it. And so many of them are just saying, let's block it because frankly, you know, I, I'll do what I've done in the past. I can't be bothered to do something different. And that is, it's sad. Certainly. And I mean, you know, it seems to, to a doctor or, to, or someone that, you know, when entering this space and when thinking about, you know, the research and, and what research needs to come um, and us just discussing about, you know, how many different types of cannabinoids and terpenes and things and how potentially specific we have to be with um, the types of cannabis prescribed to very specific medical conditions. Like you've obviously outlined a couple of different things there. Is that like, is that going to block it to, to like, Prescribe cannabis just in, in a generic form, or, or is it? Should it be about simpler than that? Well, it's a, it's a very. From my perspective, cannabis is like opening up a whole new pharmacopoeia, because you know, and and this is what we've done. Let me just say a little bit about our twenty twenty one initiative. So, my charity, Drug Science, was started looking at the. Well, we've been campaigning for medical cannabis for ten years. And cannabis became a medicine in Britain uh, three, nearly four years ago now, three and a half years ago. And so we said, oh, well, let's see what's going to happen. Let's see if doctors start prescribing. But the regulations around prescribing, because it's still a controlled drug, were so, so complicated that doctors weren't prescribing. So we thought, well, we're going to have to help them. So we set up this initiative called 2021, which basically is a big, um, it's a register of, of, um, of medical cannabis um, patients. And then we started training doctors. It's all private because you know, the NHS is, is resisting uh, medical cannabis. So, so we now have about 100 private doctors who will prescribe medical cannabis and we train them up. And basically people who want to, who think they might benefit from medical cannabis, 
would get an assessment. And if they failed on other two other treatments, then they're allowed in to the medical cannabis treatment. And now, and we have a range of different products. So the, the prescribing doctor can choose. He can choose pure CBD. They can choose pure THC. They can choose flour uh, or oil of each, or they can choose combinations, either combinations in a single product, you know, like high THC, low CBD, or the other way around, or they can mix them. And the other thing we did, which was very clever, was we, we decided to set the price for a monthly um, a month's treatment at the same price as what people were paying on the uh, illegal market. So that there was an incentive for them to come to us rather than go to the, go to the dealers. And, uh, <clears throat> and of course, there's a huge advantage in that. In it, you know, they know what they're getting and they're getting, clinic, they're getting medical advice as well as, uh, as, just, the, as just cannabis. Um, so that was, a, that was, that was the, the, the first thing we did. And one of the reasons we did it was because we knew that in about over a million people a day, so that's, that's like between the mass 2% of the adult population are using illegal cannabis every day for medical purposes. And they don't know what they're getting. They have no idea whether it's, a, whether it's skunk or whether it's a balanced mixture. I mean, mostly it's skunk because that's pretty much all that's sold on the black market here. And they're also at the risk of being offered, well, they're always gonna get offered heroin or crack as well. They're gonna buy on the black market. So, so we wanted to get them out of that, get them, get them into medicine. And now we have, uh, the last count, 2,700 patients in this initiative. 50% uh, of them are there for pain, about 30% of them are there for anxiety, and then there's a chunks of PTSD, multiple sclerosis, Tourette's syndrome, uh, cannabis use disorder, etc. So we've got, well, in fact, we've got one-fifth of all the world's patients ever having data collected from cannabis for pain, one-fifth. Of the whole that has ever been collected is now, and we're discovering remarkable things. For instance, that over forty percent of people using cannabis for pain in our uh, initiative have stopped using opiates for pain. That's pretty something, isn't it? I mean, wow! You know, that's substantial. You've gone from a, using a drug which can kill you in overdose to using using cannabis, which has never killed anyone in overdose, to our knowledge. So you know, we're getting. Uh, and anyway, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's something we had to do because it was clear that the government and the NHS weren't prepared to do it. And, but it is generating data. And we hope there's going to be a snowball effect that as, as, as we start putting out these data, doctors will say, well, hang on, I, this really does make sense now. Now, there will be doctors who say, well, it's not randomized. And it's not randomized. But now, there's a growing consensus that randomization is just something that really you need for drug companies in order to convince uh, governments or convinced um, insurers it's worth paying for but but in the real world you have evidence of a drug working in a patient that's what doctors want that's what patients want and so this is real world evidence and it's actually I think in the end gonna hopefully transform the medical profession's attitude they're gonna think why wouldn't I want to try this on my patients when other things fail because it's not more expensive and it might work a lot better and with like the pharmacological companies as well, often they're you know, latching onto the idea that it's just THC or it's just CBD and they need to isolate yeah. those particular things and then you know, develop a, a program around that particular thing. So how, how do you think that will compete with, you know, having whole plant extract organically grown from, you know, local 
places versus the the pharmacology latching on and, and developing these kind of drugs. Yeah, this is a really this is this is the tension. Uh, it is a, it is a, it is a, it is a very very great tension. Um, because there are, to be honest, there are very few companies that want to try to make the pure extract uh, and, and sell that. Because that's been tried. That's what GW Pharma did with Epidiolex. It took them 20 years. They nearly went bankrupt. They, uh, they ended up getting, getting it on the, uh, on the market. But then the British government said, well, it's too, cost too costly. <laughs> because, of course, those kind of trials in those very severely ill people with an illegal drug, which increases the cost of doing the trials by threefold, means it's you know it wasn't cost effective. And so most companies say, oh, yeah, wow, we're not going to get into this field because you know it's just too expensive and too uncertain. If we get even we get a positive result, then we might not be reimbursed. So 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 we're that's another reason why drug science got involved because we well hang on, if if, if companies aren't going to do this then you know, someone's got to do it. So that's why we started doing it. But then there's another twist to this. And this is, um, is it getting, light, getting patents for whole plant products is almost impossible because how do you know what's in them? What level do you report? You know, if there's 200 different substances, do you patent the plant with all the 200? And then you have to prove each day that each time you sell it, that there's the same 200 and the same. And it, it, it became, it's impossible really to plant to patent whole plant products and and companies if they can't patent the current model of pharmaceutical development is you've got to patent a pure substance so that's another reason why we have to do it differently and, and what we are doing this real world evidence i think is is a really it's remarkable in in the sense of detection it's actually doing what doctors used to do doctors used to say okay there is some suggestion that this might work. Let's see if it works on you. And if it works on you, great. Let's keep using it because that's what you need as long as the side effects are, are, are containable, which of course they almost are. I mean, almost always are. We, we're getting really very little in the way of problems with medical cannabis in, in, in these thousands of patients. You know, very, I think only one of them got a bit paranoid and, and I don't think any of them have become dependent. So, you know, we've kind of not only shown that it works, uh, but we also shown that it's safe, which is the other great consideration. And with both two sets of data like that, it can be very hard for doctors to say, we don't believe. Uh, and if they do, then they really are putting their blinkers on. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, you mentioned uh, that you know, very minimal have dependency, but dependency is something that does, I suppose, need to be considered with with these, um, anything that you, you take home, I suppose. And I mean, it would obviously depend on which medical condition and how much and how often and, and, and things like that. But I certainly myself have been in bouts where I've done a lot more than I should have. Um, it's a, a sweet spot for me. Seems like, you know, one or two times per week. Um, but then there's times where it's like, you know, more up to like, you know, five, six and seven. And then, Sometimes it feels like I'm overdoing it and it's kind of going past its its desired or, or optimal effect. So how should yeah. uh, people who are prescribed cannabis go about that? Is, is it going to be variance depending on what the condition is? Yeah, that's actually again, you know, a big and complicated question. Let's sort of take it, let's take a few, let's take let's start with what we know, and then we'll sure. think about, <laughs> about what we what we what might be true 
So the first thing is that we don't believe dependence in a meaningful sense occurs to cannabidiol. With, with THC, yes, we know that dependence can occur, maybe up, maybe 10% of people using strong THC. Now, dependence is exaggerated if you just use THC, because as I said earlier, cannabidiol moderates the effect of THC. In fact, there's a, a very nice study done by Tom Freeman and Val Curran from UCL showing that you can use CBD to help people get off THC. It's an anti-addictive element. You can use it to, to deal with THC addiction. So we can minimize the risk of dependence by making sure that people always get a product or get access to maybe several products together that contain CBD to counterbalance the dependence-producing effects of THC. Hmm. That's the first thing. Second thing is that um, it, you, if you, the risk of dependence is obviously determined by how much you take. So you know, so it clearly, the, the, the answer is you know, the way to minimize dependence is to use the less least amount that gives you the therapeutic benefit. And then the other thing is, uh, is that um, if you using cannabis to deal with maybe secondary problems like depression, it is more likely to push you down the route of dependence because it's not, we don't think it's that good for depression. I mean, it may help a little bit, it may help with insomnia, for instance, but using it sort of off target for, to deal with other problem, life problems is also, you know, increases your risk. That's the next thing. Um, it may be the entourage effects are protective as well. So using whole plant rather than pure is maybe a better thing, um, but we're not so sure because I think exploring the entourage effect in, in very strong THC uh, plants, is, there's not so much um, knowledge about that. And then of course, the other thing is if you, if you, you know, as you pointed out, if you should be conscious of what you're doing and if you've discovered that you, know, you are using it more than perhaps you were, you should reflect on why. Is it because your syndrome is your, you know, your pain is getting worse or your, your underlying illness is getting worse? Or is it something you know, begin to rely on? Or is it just a bad habit? In which case, you know, register what you're taking and don't ever use a dose that isn't giving you a benefit in terms of medical benefits. So it's, it's quite a similar to alcohol, really. It's about being aware and being conscious, being mindful of what you're doing. Uh, and and be aware there is a risk of yeah, there is a risk of dependence. So, and if you feel that that's happening, we'll definitely move towards lower THC and more CBD. Mm, well, well, it's very interesting that you said that because the first script that I got was it was like a, I got two different types, but they were both very high THC and very low CBD. I think they were less than one oh. percent CBD and like nineteen percent THC. So yeah, very very much on the THC side. Um, and I kind of reported back and said, look, this is, you know, it was, it was too stimulating, um, wasn't kind of what I was after. And I wasn't, you know, it, it was, it was helping with, with pain. Cause it kind of makes me feel a bit more you know, connected to my body and I can like stretch and, and push through different mm. barriers, um, where I was feeling the pain, which is very helpful. Um, but yeah, I found that I was, I was, I was, yeah, doing it too much. And it just felt like it was not providing as much benefit as I thought it potentially could have. And then my next script I actually got, uh, it, was, it was called Balanced Kush, 
mm-hmm. and it was 6% THC, 8% CBD. And immediately that had a much clearer state of mind. And that was actually, yeah, I, since then I haven't really overindulged too much. So it's, it's nice to hear you clarify as to, as to why that's the case. Let me, let me say a few other words. I think that feels, that's a really important you know, observation you've made. The, the, the principle that we use in our 2021 initiative is this, is that unless there's a compelling reason to start with strong THC, i.e. someone's been on it before or they've got extraordinary levels of pain and they, it, for the, certainly for the first person coming into medical cannabis for the first time, he's not used it from the illegal market. We always, always start with CBD predominant. We would always do that. In fact, we might just start with CBD alone and we would give that for a month and see how it goes. Yeah, then, now there's another twist to this. With these multiple different formulations which you get now, you can, you can get the patient to self-titrate. And what we find very commonly is that for people say with multiple sclerosis or chronic pain, the best combination and is a combination of THC and CBD. Uh, so, so maybe five or six milligrams of THC and maybe 10 to 20 milligrams of CBD or maybe more. But occasionally, of course, you will get breakthrough pain. There are people, suddenly the pain will become overwhelming. And then if you've got, say, THC oil or even better THC flour, which you can vape, then you can use that just intermittently to deal with a severe pain, a breakthrough pain. And, and again, that gives people an opportunity to, to minimize the use of THC because it's just there when they need it really, when it's really bad, where you get the background cover from that combination of, uh, of CBD and THC. And again, I would also emphasize, if possible, the full plant extract could be better. Now, we don't know that's true for most disorders because they've not been studied. I mean, as I've said, it's it's true for these children with epilepsy that we've looked at. But um, if you're not getting adequate benefits, say from, from pure CBD, that it might be worth trying a whole, a whole hemp extract. Yeah, the, the only ones that, that I've used, obviously I'm just referring to myself because it's as relevant to me, but um, they've all been flowers. I haven't actually experimented with oils at all because I have a vaporizing, you know, you set the temperature. So all of these have, have been through a vape. Ah, well, let's just talk about that. So oh. I think I, I think that's the wrong way around. Sorry, Tommy. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the reasons it, it, it can be, cha- yes, cannabis, the, the heart, when you vape, it gets into your body very, very fast, but it gets out fast. When you put oil in, it gets in more slowly, but it lasts for longer. So you get much better control of symptoms over the course of the day with oils than with vaping. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to encourage doctors to prescribe oils because to get that good stability across time. Yeah, I mean, certainly. Sorry, it's particularly relevant at night, you know, when you want to promote something like sleep, you know, vaping to go to, to, go to sleep doesn't make a lot of sense, you know, but a few drops of your oil, you know, can give you that stability of plasma levels across the whole night. Yeah, that, that it does make a lot of sense. I mean, a lot of dependencies and addictions kind of arise from that, you know, that, instant gratification that, that you, you're getting something and then it, the, the habit kind of forms around there. 
Well, that's right. In fact, we know from research on, on other, other drugs that there are two factors which maximize dependence potential. The first is the dose, and the second is how fast it gets in. So, you know, if getting things, you know, that's, that's why, for instance, something like cocaine is more addictive than something like Ritalin because cocaine gets in the brain within seconds and Ritalin takes, you know, maybe an hour to, or half an hour to get in the brain. So the faster something gets in, the more addictive it is. So we, now sometimes, you know, you will need the immediate relief, in which case vaping is great, but, you know, I would say reserve it for when you can't, when you get breakthrough pain. Yeah, brilliant. No, it's very sound advice. Um, is there anything else uh, you'd like to add uh, within cannabis or the cannabis plant or any research that, that you're conducting or the research that, that should be coming? Yeah, one thing to say is that we talk about this, this counterbalance between cannabidiol and THC uh, uh, and uh, in terms of it, you know, being sort of yin and yang. And actually, you know, now there is some research that we've published um, recently showing that you, know, you can see in the brain that it's not that there are different, the brain effects of pure THC are definitely different from the um, the effects of a balanced mixture, so so it's not it's not just a subjective experience now. There's also there's also brain imaging data to to support that. And the other thing, you know, it's we have known really fifteen years now that people who just use strong THC have more paranoia and less um, quality of life in terms of socialization and 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 and. Uh, and more hanedonia than people who use the balanced mixture. So we've known this for a long time. And our policies of trying, to, certainly in the UK, our policies of trying to eliminate cannabis use has just made the problem much, much worse because it's driven people to, to skunk into very strong forms of THC because that's the most cost-effective form for the dealers. And we've got to, you know, medical cannabis has got to be, you know, is very different and must always be pushing away from that, that direction. Then the second thing I want to say, and this may not be rather so relevant to, to you in Australia, I don't know, but do you have a spice problem, a, a synthetic cannabinoid problem there? Um, I know that it's very prominent. I, I don't think I'm in and around it enough to know its issues, but I, I do know about it. Well, and certainly so, for, I mean, the, 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 this, these synthetic cannabinoids, for instance, I mean, they were put on sale in, in New Zealand about eight years ago is when they decided to try to have a more rational approach to um, to drug policy. And, and of course, that was a really <laughs> dumb thing to do because these synthetic cannabinoids are usually more potent mm. and, and more toxic than cannabis. So yeah, just a piece of advice. If you're gonna, if you wanna use cannabis, use balanced plant mixture and steer well away from synthetics because some of them are really unpleasant. And also some of them are now laced with things like fentanyls, and certainly in America, they've been laced with fentanyls. So try to avoid anything synthetic, stick with the plant. Yeah, perfect. Um, one thing that we haven't actually touched on that I, that I was just reminded then um, was around, I mean, we slight, we mentioned briefly, or we can mention briefly, uh, terpenes. Um, I don't know, I couldn't necessarily find um, rigorous uh, scientific research around uh, individual terpenes and, and their effects within cannabis and how they um, perhaps facilitate uh, certain movement of, of things. Is there anything that we know uh, definitively or we're exploring in that space? Well, some of the terpenes have been 
studied not in particularly in humans, but in sort of in, in test tubes and in animal models. So yeah, I mean the idea is that the myrcenes help you sleep and the linolenes help you bounce around a bit and keep you awake more. So, but the big challenge is getting a product that's got the right the right balance because because currently the producers aren't you know giving you a list of what they need. So you know there are anecdotal reports. You know people say, oh yeah, I prefer this strain to this strain because it's got more of one or the other, but it's something we're trying to do now, and we're trying to get full, sorry, relatively detailed chemical analysis on all the products that uh, we're, uh, are being used in 2021. So we can begin to, to ask that question to see whether the, the terpenes, the terpene content or the terpene balance does have a, an effect. I think it's likely to have, but I think it's going to be hard to prove. Mm. Yeah, it's often difficult to, to figure out where how we leverage technology to, to figure out something like that and, and where do you point it and, and how do you try to design a study to figure those things out? Yeah, I mean, it's, it would be very expensive to do. Uh, to do yeah, I mean, you could just take the pure terpene and give it to people, but then you've got all, I mean, just to do that. If you do that, it becomes a drug, in which case you've got to spend millions of dollars doing safety testing. <laughs> Why, you know, who's going to do that? unless you're going to turn it into a drug. And we don't want to turn it into a drug. We like we want to know it's present. So, so I think, again, the best, but actually the, the appropriate way to pursue this is to know what's there, collect data from thousands of people, and then gradually see whether the different um, main elements, um, you know, the different terpenes, give you diff slightly different profiles. And that will, that, that's probably the only way it's going to happen, because I can't see anyone doing systematic work on the extracts. And, for the reasons I've explained, yeah, yeah, it would be very intensive work, and yeah, there, there's there's often some parties, and and I see this uh, the same kind of uh, parties as it relates to psychedelics, and they really want to know, like particularly like neurobiologists and the likes, really want to know mechanism of action, and then really trying to figure out each mechanistic biochemical step that it takes, and then all that's why this happens, and this why that happens, but what we really need to know is you know we we map out and try all of these different things in different ways and from the psychological and subjective reports we can start to make a, a map without knowing the biochemical reaction of, of this and that Do you, it seems yeah, to be the right. most reasonable approach it is and, it, and of course there's an enormous missed opportunity particularly in the usa you know you've, you've got 200 million people now having access to medical cannabis but there isn't systematic data collection. Why not? Because it's still illegal under federal law, and the federal law means that they can't study something that's illegal. So, so that's just truly the one of the biggest missed opportunities in research in the history of the world. It's, it's yeah. Anyway, we we other countries are more rational in that sense, and we can you know we we should be studying it. And, and I think what we should be doing is encouraging the producers to give us that data on these so the other main ingredients in their uh, in their whole plant extract so we can put it put it into databases so i can tell you i had a very good conversation last week i was we were my drug science team were invited to talk to nida the national institute of drug abuse in the states who are very interested in in trying to remedy this 20 year deficit they had in terms of accessing um, data on medical cannabis in the States. They were fascinated by our, our database. 
And if we could instigate something like that in the US, you know, we might get hundreds of thousands of people into it. It won't be easy because, of course, it's private medicine. But like Australia, it's difficult to persuade people who are paying privately to, to go into these kinds of research things. But, but I think in the US, say, they, they could probably incentivize it, in which case, maybe in another 10 years, you know, we really will have a, a database that, uh, that answers many of your questions. Hmm. But one thing remains true is that these medicines are incredibly effective, whether or not we know specifics and, and minute details, we do know that they are incredibly effective and across, you know, a, a trans diagnostic action, you can, yeah. you can use cannabis for, for many, many different things. And it's, it's frustrating um, to see that, you know, that, like I said, there are parties that want to know mechanism, and we have to know that before we then suggest um, which cannabis is used for what medical condition. But again, that's, it is a reductionist way of looking at things and we need to bring it back to this whole um, idea of this whole cannabis and, and how it's nurturing these systems of our, our brain and our body. And it's very, very clear to me that I've, you know, personally and, and many of from what I've uh, from gathered is that people were receive tremendous benefit from these medicines. And I hope that um, the work that you're doing and, and the work that people are doing all around the world is, is going to push that forward because there's, it's been, it's been too long. And, and we it need has, it has to and it's not, it's not been too long. It's also, there's been an active, I mean, just as a sort of, you know, in case some of your listeners don't realize, I mean, cannabis was a medicine in China 6,000 years ago. The Chinese character for cannabis is the same as for anesthesia. It was a medicine in India 4,000, 5,000 years ago. It's the world's oldest medicine. The reason it, it hasn't been a medicine in most of the last century is simply because the Americans decided they had to fight a war against something other than alcohol when the alcohol prohibition was uh, rolled back. So the war on cannabis was simply a job creation for the American um, Drug Enforcement Agency. That's all it was. But because the America has such huge influence internationally, that they rolled it into the war on drugs. And then, then the United Nations has endorsed the war on drugs. And I mean, we're in this absurd, absurd situation now. Where eventually in 2018, me and my charity and a number of other charities forced, forced the WHO to review the medical harms of cannabis. They hadn't the medical value of cannabis, sorry. They had not reviewed med the value of medical cannabis since 1934. And we said to them, why not? And they said, we didn't have the money. And we said, fine, well, we'll do it for you. Oh, you can't do that. You need to do it our way. Well, we'll do it your way. Yeah, we'll and eventually we did it their way. And they said, oh yeah, of course it's a medicine. That was three years ago, but still the UN have not approved it because there are countries, particularly China, particularly Indonesia, particularly Russia, that much prefer to keep drugs banned because they, they enjoy that approach. They enjoy the idea that they're strong leaders and that they enjoy the idea that they can punish people because, because drug users are often you know, the easiest people to, um, to target because especially in democracies, they don't vote. So, so the whole hysteria about cannabis has been created for political value in the states and perpetuated through the world. It's, it's, it's one of the greatest lies that have been told to mankind ever. 
And it, it is, you know, we are, thank goodness, rectifying in some countries, but be, just be clear about this. You know, Australia is in the lead. You know, there are only 20 countries in the world where it's still medicine. I mean, if I've got time, can I give you another anecdote? Absolutely. All the time in the world. So three months ago, I was asked to give evidence to the um, Indonesian Supreme Court. And I was, you know, so I'm in Britain. I had to get up at four in the morning. I, I had to do, go through all the rituals of, you know, swearing on the Bible that I would tell the truth. So I, I, I talked to this Indonesian Supreme Court. And they, they, were, they wanted to know whether if they made medical cannabis available in Indonesia, they, would, they were worried they were going to breach the UN Convention. And I said, no, of course not. Of course you're not breaching it. You know, you, you, you know, of course not. You know, you, the UN Convention say that you can use it as a medicine if you need to. And I don't know. I don't know what we I haven't told me yet whether they've actually changed their laws because, you know, apparently they do grow a rather good strain of, uh, of cannabis in Indonesia. And they've certainly got millions and millions of people who value it. But, but that just shows you how this terror of not complying with the UN can actually completely distort people's thinking about something like health. I mean, it, hey, so it's um, the legacy is still there in most countries. It's still not legal. So, you know, that's, that's one of the big challenges is to rolling it out. And until the UN accepts the WHO recommendation, it's going to be difficult. Hmm. Well, I hope that all the work that you're doing, you're obviously doing an incredible amount of work in the space, and it is it's had such a huge impact. So I appreciate all of that. And it, yeah, it, when you appeal to, you know, traditional medicine, I'm often, you know, thinking about, um, if you're familiar with the Materia Medica, the traditional Chinese kind of medicine book that was, you know, written over the thousands of years, um, and, yeah. and created and it's just huge, I guess. Yeah. Like Bible of all these different, uh, herbs and medicines used in different contexts and, you know, it's with like, you know, medicinal mushrooms, um, aside from the psychedelic ones, things like reishi and lion's mane were all documented in there and as was cannabis, as was many of these things. And I think the mentality is starting to switch and we're starting to have a bit more trust in, you know, not necessarily knowing what it does in biological terms and just having trust in the fact that those, what they've documented is proven to be, very, very effective. And I guess that is helping to break through uh, the stigma that's been built up from this war on drugs. Yeah, and, and the, but the, just to emphasize, the biggest problem we have in your country, in my country, and, and in Canada, and, and to some extent in America, although they've just got enough private doctors there too who are pro-cannabis, the biggest problem we have is that doctors now won't believe evidence it isn't provided by the drug industry. You know, doc, 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 doctors have been so brainwashed into thinking the only piece, of the only thing that is real evidence is an RCT that they cannot think beyond that. And that, and uh, so you know, the rollout would be much greater if doctors could actually understand that that, that medicine is not about simply doing what uh, an RCT tells you. It's about looking at the whole person and looking at the possibilities of of whole plant extracts helping them. And then they would discover, I think, you know that. You don't need RCTs anymore for this. We, a medicine that's 6,000 years old, you don't really need RCTs. You just need to work out what the best <laughs> combination of products is for, the, for each patient and take it from there.
Wonderful. Well, as always, David, it's it's a real pleasure to be able to sit down with you and discuss these kind of topics. It's a really fascinating area, um, and I'm excited to see where the where the research goes. And and I know that it's only going to be positive because it, it it's it's very obvious, um, and that you're building up this database is is very promising. And I do hope that all of this work will be going to somewhere. I mean, it is going somewhere because it's it seems to be getting more lenient certainly in, in Australia it is and in terms of its medical uh, approach and starting to, to learn more about it and understand it more so I just want to say a big thank you to, to all the work that you do and continue to do um, it's 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 truly amazing so thank you well thanks again and uh, uh, I'll uh, look forward to speaking to you in future uh, on the psychedelic book next year hopefully thanks Tommy uh, Thank you so much for listening to this episode and for your interest and support in mental health and psychedelic therapy. Hope you've learned a lot from this episode. I certainly learned from this episode and very practical information for me and hopefully practical information for you as well. But please be sure that this information was provided for informational purposes only and does not substitute the advice provided by a doctor or other healthcare professional. With that said... Please check out some of the links in the show notes and there are many ways that you can support the podcast. So check out those links, but I'm going to leave it there. So I'll see you here for the next one.